Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. It has been so long since we recorded because Nicole was not here for the longest time. I know, I'm sorry. I was off having that honeymoon adventure that people tell you you should do. And I agree, you should. I know. Maybe next time, if I ever get married again. Highly recommend it. The honeymoon. Maybe not the marriage. Maybe not the marriage. Can I just have someone take me on a honeymoon? Listeners? Any of you? Probably. I mean, you're going to pay for it, but, um, you know, maybe I'll put out. (laughs) (laughs) So where are we today? We're uh, in Connecticut, right? Connecticut. Connecticut. I know. That's what I say in my head when I have to spell spell it. it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, nothing's going to help you spell Massachusetts, but Connecticut, you can, you know. That's fair. That's fair. I don't, I mean, I've been to Connecticut a bunch of times because I have relatives there. Um, I don't know too much about it as a state per se. I just drive through it. <laughs> and I, I know I know the McDonald's on the, the side of the, the highway. Fair, that's fair. I know Hartford's the capital. I know, yeah, Hartford. Um, other things about Connecticut. Um, well, it also is one of, it's weird because it's both, at least this was years ago that this happened, but it was the richest and poorest state hmm. together because... Their suburbs are very wealthy, but, like, their cities are very poor. Mm, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's a very odd state. Yeah. And Yale's there. Yale's there. Yale that's University. true. Um, it apparently is known as the Constitution State, officially. I wonder why. It's also called the Nutmeg State. I love nutmeg. Nutmeg is always good. That's perfect for your pumpkin spice. That it is. Basic bitches out there, take note. <laughs> uh, the state motto of Connecticut is, I can't read that in Latin, so it's, he who will transplant still sustains. Where is it in Latin? Let me try to read it. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Not that good. But, uh, oh, Mark Twain is a big guy in Connecticut. Like, his house is there. Oh, yeah. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court was one of his books. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Oh no! Connecticut is very interesting because they do have a lot of a lot of England in their history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of English settlers and like very well known families from England too, which is why, well, in my story for our next week after this, I have to be like, um, what towns were they now? One was like Bristol, and I was like, not England, not England. <laughs> And the other was Cornwall, not oh, England. England. <laughs> oh, New London. New London, yeah. They have, a, they have a nice aquarium there. They do. Lots of manatees. Highly recommend checking it out. Second best place for manatees, first Mi- being Florida. Mystic Pizza, right? Mystic Pizza, yes. I've been there. I know you have, and I want to go. The pizza's really good, y'all. I also love that movie. I've only ever seen parts of the movie. <gasps> oh, we have to have a movie night. We do. It was like this weird back-to-back thing on TV. It was like a... Julia Roberts thing, I mm-hmm. guess, because it was that, and then it was Satisfaction. Oh, goodness. So I watched part of Mystic Pizza, and then part of Satisfaction, and then had to do stuff. I mean, the true shining star of Mystic Pizza is Annabeth Gish, in my book. Oh, I still love, oh, what is her name? Lily... Taylor? Yes. Yes. I have such a hard time remembering her name, because it's so close to Lily Tomlin, and it's not Lily Tomlin. <laughs> <laughs> Different generation, my friend. Yes. So, you want to tell me about your Connecticut true crime story that you're very excited about? No, I do not. Well, fine. Okay, I will, just because you asked nicely. (laughs) My story this week takes place in Newtown, Connecticut, which I mean, kind of a lazy name, but you know. Where are you going? As you do. Well, I left Old Town. So I gotta go to Newtown now. (laughs) 
Uh, it's in both the Danbury metropolitan area and the New York metropolitan area. Um, and Western Newtown has the reputation for being one of the most affluent areas in Connecticut, according to Wikipedia. Newtown is also home to Sandy Hook Elementary School, which, if that sounds familiar to you, you may remember back in 2012, they had like a really horrible school shooting there where a man named Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people before committing suicide. Mm. So now that I brought the room down, um, and that's not even my story, um, my story takes place in the 1980s. Okay. And involves two airline employees. So keep those trays in the upright position and notice the captain has now turned on the no smoking sign because this is the murder of Hella Crafts. Huh. First of all, her name is Hella. I know, like Hella Spelled H E L L E. So it's kind of like if you look at it, it would just be hell. Okay. And then, of course, I have the image of the Norse goddess of the underworld in my head because well, her she, name was hell. Did she had like one half as like a beautiful maiden, and the other half her face is like her very face skeletal. is like kind of, yeah. Yeah. So cool imagery. So, like I said, my story centers around a married couple who both worked for airlines. Hella Crafts was a Danish flight attendant working for Pan Am. And her husband, Richard Crafts, was a pilot working for Eastern Airlines, as well as a part-time policeman. I didn't know you could even be a part-time police officer. It's kind of like, oh, I think I need some extra cash. The holidays are coming up. I think I'll moonlight as a police officer. <laughs> it just sounds weird to me. Well, I guess, though, if you're in like a smaller or more rural area, like I know in Alaska, for example, a lot of parts of Alaska don't actually have a police force. They just have like locals who are trained to handle True. things like that. So maybe it's a situation like that. Could be. They were married in 1979 and ended up having three children together. This may seem like they had it all. They had a nice house uh, in a quiet area, three beautiful children, great jobs, and a love that was constantly soaring to new heights, quite literally. (laughs) Um, But not everything is always as it seems. Because Richard was having not just one, but several affairs. She had found out in the fall of 1986... Uh, but had obviously had her suspicions about him before that. Richard was never home, and he would lie to her about where he had been, you know, the usual. Meanwhile, she was there raising the three kids and still working while he gallivanted around town. Wow. Richard had also had an affair before they had gotten married, uh, from what I found in my research. Girl. Yeah. Um, It would seem that the only real reason they actually got married in the first place was because Hella was pregnant and too far along to have an abortion. That's rough. Uh, yeah, another reason not to just stay together for the kids, I guess, because, um, you know, things are going to obviously end badly. Yeah. And my source for that information is a quote from Richard himself. Really? As that's the only reason they got married. Yeah. Wow. I'm already not a fan of Richard. No, he's a dick. Okay. No, well, Richard is a dick, <laughs> so that works. So well named. Richard is a dick. She decides um, that she's had enough after all this information comes to light. Um, And she starts talking to a divorce attorney because obviously this was something that she hadn't signed up for. So Hella also told the attorney that she had been worried about possible physical violence from her husband. So he just seems like an all-around bad guy. Mm. He had beaten her before and some of her friends and family even knew about it. It just really wasn't a good marriage at all. The attorney told her to hire a private detective so she would have proof of his affairs. And she did just that. And he was able to take a bunch of photos to show her of her husband with this other woman who was also another flight attendant from New Jersey. Clearly has a type. Yeah. She was blonde too and Hella was blonde. 
Um, I don't know if they worked together or not at all, but it was really sad because when the private eye uh, was talking about this on Forensic Files, he said that he showed her the pictures and she just sat there and just cried her ass out for 10 minutes. That's terrible. So that's really upsetting. I mean, even like if you know something, you just don't... Seeing it's different than knowing, for sure. Exactly. She was really worried about her husband becoming violent, and after officially filing for divorce, now that she had proof of the affair, she told her friends um, and the divorce attorney, if anything happens to me, don't think it was an accident. That's really scary. Yeah. I'd I'd be so concerned if that was like my friend or loved one. I'd be like, girl. Yeah. What do you need? Because we got to Exactly. We're going to take you somewhere else until this divorce is over. You will only see him when you absolutely need to, and you will not be alone. Um, she had also told the divorce attorney uh, that another reason she feared Richard was because he had a lot of guns in the house. Uh, so on November 18th of 1986, her friend just drives her home from work. Uh, she'd been gone for a little bit, working a flight to Europe. Uh, so she walked in the front door and then was never seen again. A snowstorm had hit Newtown that night, and... Uh, to get away from it, Richard said that he was bringing Hella and the kids to stay in Westport at his sister's house. But when they arrived, Hella was obviously not with them. Hmm. Needless to say, she missed work a few days later, which wasn't like her at all. Her friends started to worry, as they do, and they decided to give her a call. But they were only able to get Richard, who told one of them, Oh, you know, her mother's really sick and she went to Denmark to be with her. How convenient. Mm-hmm. Like she wouldn't have told anyone that. She worked for Pan Am, so, I mean, that could easily be checked up on because she would probably have used the airline that she worked with to get a cheaper flight. Well, oftentimes, too, if you're a flight attendant, like, you can get flights for free depending... If you work the flight, yeah. yeah. So I guess he realized that his story sucked because when asked about her whereabouts later on, he told people that she was on vacation with a friend in the Canary Islands... Jesus, Dick, get your story straight. I know. And then he told others simply that he didn't know where she was. I'm assuming this is after he realized how easily the other stories could be checked out. Of course, these friends talked to one another and quickly realized that he had been, they'd all been told different stories. And, you know, they didn't know where she was, so they decided to contact her attorney and tell her of their suspicions. The attorney was smart and contacted the same investigator that had checked out Richard's affair. He was a man named Keith Mayo. Uh, with that name, I, you know, him being a PI, I imagined in my head Keith Mars from Veronica Mars, but then also I imagined Fern Mayo from Jawbreaker. <laughs> Keith tells the attorney uh, they should report it to the police, but the police are all, ah, she's fine, no biggie, she'll turn up. Spoiler alert, she hasn't turned up to this day. And this happened on December 1st. She'd been missing for about 12 days at that point. That's some shitty police work. But then again, this guy was a part-time cop, and, you know, cops normally stick together, so... Yeah, that sounds like a little bit of a blue wall. Anybody but Richard. He was also apparently a volunteer constable. I didn't mention that earlier, but... Hmm. I don't know, like, what That was different or the same gig, or... I don't know. Just something I found in another source, so I thought I'd mention it. Being the good guy that Keith Mayo is, though, he didn't just give up here. He launches his own investigation, making him my new favorite person. Seriously, when you're like, this guy works part-time as a cop, I have to stick to this case because something's not going to be... Exactly. Something's very fishy, and the cops obviously aren't going to help, so he needed to do it himself. He was also highly suspicious of Richard, 
uh, and made him his main suspect. He starts following a few leads and talking to a few people, and one person that he talked to was the family's maid, who told him this story about a mysterious dark grapefruit-sized stain on the carpet that hadn't been there prior to Hella's disappearance. The maid had told Richard about this, and he says, well, let's just tear up the rug. Not suspicious at all. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't go to the store to try to buy blood cleaner on <laughs> the <Yep. laughs> Tom Capano. Exactly. It's very, very similar. She also reported to Keith that the family had one of these big freezers in their garage, and I guess uh, that they called like an ice chest, I guess. Yeah, like a deep freeze. Yeah, or, like yeah. a deep freeze. That's the word. Well, it went missing when Hella did. No. Oh. Keith was also able to find credit card receipts, dumbass, that said he rented a wood chipper around the time she disappeared. Wait, that Richard rented a wood yep. chipper? Uh oh. And also bought a chainsaw and rented a U Haul. <laughs> Um, I'm just flashing on the movie Fargo. Now, I'm going to tell you that this case inspired a movie. Any idea what that movie might be? Fargo! It was a hit in 1997. That's right, it is Fargo. If you guys don't know about the movie Fargo, it takes place in North Dakota. And everyone talks like this, don't you know? Uh, It actually has very little to do with the case, uh, other than the use of a wood chipper. But we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. That makes you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nothing like Fargo. They just took that aspect of it. So on December 26th, the state police finally got involved in the case, but only because the county prosecutor referred them to it. Hmm. Uh, seeing as Richard was the prime suspect here, they bring him in to take a polygraph test, which, stated before, is pure bullshit. And he passed, of course. So police knew Richard Crafts was vacationing with the kids in Florida after this, So they took this opportunity to raid the house, knowing they wouldn't get any resistance from a man who wasn't there. So remember that mysterious stain on the carpet that I mentioned earlier? Yeah, that he had had torn that carpet out, right? Yes. Okay. Police found in the home pieces of carpet from the master bedroom floor, as well as blood smear on the side of the bed in five microscopic drops. Wow. Maybe Richard Kraft should have asked Tom Capano where he gets his blood remover. I don't know. (laughs) So they also find receipts stating that he had purchased new bed linens around the time of the disappearance. They had also brought along a forensic expert named Dr. Henry Lee, the man who sounds... had found the blood stain. He found the blood stains. Okay. That Henry Lee sounds familiar. I don't know. Maybe you heard of him before. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The, he was very big on the forensic files episode that I watched for part of my research. That could be it. Uh, he was able to examine the mattress fibers using something called orthotolidine which it's like luminol and other things like that it turns blue in the presence of blood this shit was definitely blood and further (laughs) testing revealed it to be human blood cool now since there wasn't a body at this point they had nothing to test it against to see if it was hella's blood Hmm. oh and they were able to test it to see that it was circulation blood too and not just menstrual blood is that it's different blood. Is that a thing? Yep. I, huh. I mean, yeah. that makes sense, but I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I'm assuming like that circulation blood probably Check has the more box oxygen on that blood test. or something. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's all kinds of extra yeah. bits and bobs and in And menstrual the... blood probably has a lot more like hormones running through it. Yeah, I'm sure it adds lots more, you know. I mean, this is all a guess. I'm not Dust a scientist. Dust bunnies, things like that, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> when looking at the blood stain pattern... 
they're also able to conclude uh, the person it belonged to was leaning or kneeling by the bed and was struck from above by a blunt object because forensics is kind of amazing. All that from a blood splatter, huh? All that from the blood splatter. Uh, They also took the towels from the house, which had been washed, but when putting it in the orthotoladine, they showed that they were once soaked in blood. Oh, so it's not like, oh, I cut myself shaving. Sorry. It's just like, I used this to mop up some blood. (laughs) Yes. This mopped up murder. (laughs) Mopped up murder. (laughs) (laughs) Do you need help mopping up after your murder? (laughs) Billy May is here. (laughs) So this still didn't really prove much uh, since they had no way of knowing if it was her blood or not. So the police still couldn't really arrest her husband for anything and began looking for other clues. Luckily, a snowplow driver reported seeing a man on the road with a wood chipper the night of Hella's disappearance. Because remember, it snowed? Yeah. And he reported seeing the wood chipper again on River Road an hour or so later. And this was around 3 a.m. In a snow, like snowstorm? Mm Mm-hmm. So they got the guy to come in and were like, hey, why don't you just take us to where you saw the wood chipper? Okay, thanks, bye. (laughs) And he did. So the snowplow driver took them to the spot on River Road where the Housatonic River meets Lake Zoar, I believe it says pronounced. Sure, Zoar. Yeah, Zoar, Zoar, I don't know how you pronounce it. Sorry, Connecticut. It's like boar, but with a Z instead of a B. Yeah. The police just scour the riverbanks, looking for anything. They basically, you know, find lots of leaves, uh, some wood chips, and wait for it, wait for it. An envelope addressed to one Ms. Hella Crafts. And huh. it pretty much was untouched by the wood chipper. What? what? Yeah. How the heck? Uh, they were a little puzzled, just like you are, as to why the wood chipper was used, but drew the conclusion when they started finding lots of hair. <gasps> no! So I don't remember if That's I actually... That's a real thing? Yep. Oh. I don't remember if I actually put it in my notes, so I'm going to tell you now about the envelope. Okay. I need a break, though, because... <laughs> all right. All right. Tell me about the envelope. Okay, the reason for the envelope was because, obviously, her body went through the wood chipper. Guys, I'm not even going to, you know, try to lie about that right now. So she had this cardigan that she was wearing. Mm-hmm. And I guess she had the mail in the pocket. Mm-hmm. So that's why the mail was in the wood chipper. Okay. Yeah. And that's really what helped them figure out, like, we need to be looking for more stuff. Yeah. That's so weird. Exactly. One of the police officers who was interviewed, uh, he was kind of funny when they were talking to him, and he said something like, if this is what I think it is, it's time to retire. And I completely do not blame him. Yeah. So, yeah. It's going to get really gross in a minute here, guys. Fair warning. It took the police days to sift through everything, but the hair was not all they found, though. Uh, Upon further investigation... They discovered some blue fibers, some metal, small bone fragments, and a painted fingernail. Oh. Yep. They also searched the river and found pieces of a chainsaw with a serial number scratched off. I've heard of people doing this with guns, but never a chainsaw. Yeah, but I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it still was part of the... Yeah. Yeah. Um, They were able to search the rented U-Haul truck as well and found human tissue inside that tested positive for blood. By this point, the story of Hella Craft's disappearance in possible murder was really getting out to the news, and people started hounding her husband. 
but he was still maintaining his innocence and saying, but guys, I passed a lie detector test. You know, obviously it wasn't me. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> and this is still the state police investigating, right? This is the right? state police, okay. yeah. Because the local police wasn't working on Yeah, they, they need to bring in the big guns. Yeah. Well, this forensics team was not slowing down with their analyses at all. First, they examined the chainsaw tooth by tooth. Uh, I don't want to know how long that took, but good for you guys. Uh, they find some more fiber, some tissue, and again, some blonde hair. The hair and blue fibers were a match to each other, and they revealed that the blue was the same color as Hella's favorite nightshirt. Here's the best part. They used a solution on the chainsaw, where the serial number had been scratched off and were able to recover the numbers. Science is so cool. Science is amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. So when they ran it, guess who it belonged to? Richard. Not surprising, but you know. So things were starting to come together a bit. And they decided to take Hella's hairbrush and test the hairs they got from that against the hairs that they found. They did this with each and every individual strand of hair. And it came up as a match to Hella. It was only a microscopic match, but hey, anything is good at this point. Yeah, that's very thorough. Like, good on them. Exactly. So when they... Uh, they decided to go in for the fingernail next. Mm-hmm. They took Hella's fingernail polish and analyzed it. And it was also a match for the nail polish on the fingernail. So still not enough, but pretty good. They still needed to figure out what to do with these bone fragments. So they did another test. Sorry, PETA. <laughs> but they did this using a pig. Since their bones and flesh are similar to that of humans. Oh, God, that's probably why you hear that human meat tastes like pork. Yeah, long pig, I guess. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why I avoid the majority of pig meat. Um, So they sent this poor pig through the same type of wood chipper, and the ridge markings on its bone were a match. Well, I'm disgusted and disappointed that that had to happen, but I'm also happy that it was for a worthwhile cause. Exactly. Side note, I've heard tell from some friends who have become, you know, piercers and tattoo artists, Mm -hmm. that when you need to practice... You will use like pig ears and stuff. Oh, yeah, because it's very similar, similar to like, human, human skin. skin. And I'm like, that is not what I thought I would ever know. But now I want to share it with you so that you can also That's... think about that in the shower sometimes. Great, thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for that. My life would not have been complete without that. Thanks so so much. <laughs> well, they're able to make out that the bones were human as well by this point, and that this person was probably hit over the head. But they needed to know if it was Hella or not. So they froze some of the fragments in liquid nitrogen and then ground them into paste. Don't ask because I have no answers there. (laughs) The answer is science, guys. Yes, because science. Um, I would have loved to go to school for this shit, but my dumbass went for psychology instead. So I can't answer any questions you may have about this weird, (laughs) weird science-y shit. Uh, So from here, again, don't ask me how, but they were able to determine a blood type by doing this. Uh, These bones belong to someone with type O blood, which is the same type as Hella. Now they decide to go for the final thing they found at the scene, that piece of metal, which it turns out was a crown from a tooth. Oh. But there was no tooth with it. Okay. So they decide to go back to the river and look for a tooth now. This part is actually kind of funny. A member of either the police or the forensics team, I think it was the forensics team, was looking for evidence and sifting through the riverbank with a pail, and he tripped and fell into the river. (laughs) 
He goes into one of the tents that they had set up there and went to, like, you know, wash his hands and stuff. There was the tooth. That's amazing. That is literally, like, okay, my new favorite saying is, isn't going to be, like, a needle in a haystack. It's, yeah. like, finding a tooth in the riverbank. That's, yeah, okay, that's going to be good. We can use that one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although there wasn't, it wasn't a gold tooth, but the tooth was still the golden piece of evidence here. So, you know. Even though there was no body, the medical examiner was able to officially issue a death certificate now for Helicrafts. And this is on January 13th of 1987. So this is like half a year. No. I forget when I said she died. I think it was like November something, right? Yeah, I don't remember either. Anyway, so it's like... Couple. Couple months. Uh, and at this point, Richard was immediately arrested after that. Thank God, finally. So, yeah, Hella's husband was arrested finally, and a trial began in New London, Connecticut, which we mentioned earlier in the beginning of the podcast. That's where the Coast Guard Academy is, too. Yeah. So this was on May, or in May of 1988. They had to move the trial to a different court because of the veritable media circus surrounding this insane case. So sadly, this trial ended in a hung jur- a jury because one juror refused to vote guilty and the juror actually just walked out and refused to come back. That's so... I, Maybe I, he was paid off by Richard. I don't know. I don't know. That's very, like... I, I'm so curious. Like, I've never been on a jury. Neither have I. I don't particularly ever want to because I feel like it's quite the burden, but... That's a lot... Especially if it's, like, a murder yes, trial or something. Yes. I'm Like, I don't want that responsibility. Yeah. I always, I wonder what that person was thinking, and they're just like, nope, I'm out. Just like, I'm not Bye. doing this. See ya. I mean, what happens if you just walk out? Are you, like, jailed? I don't know. Because, I mean, it's, like, supposed to be, like, your civic duty to do these things. I don't know. According to the government, and, you know. So. If someone knows, let us know, because I'm curious about that. Yeah, I'm really curious now, too. So, there was a second trial in Norwalk, which ended in November of the same year, and Richard Crafts was found guilty of the murder of his wife and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. He was eligible for parole in two years from now. So, 2021? Yeah, 2021. So bad that took me so long to figure out that math. <laughs> <laughs> Just add two. So basically, like, this case was, like, weirdly similar to Anne-Marie Fahey. Like, you know, it was, like, almost the perfect crime. But then not uh, how the maid sort of helped. Yeah, it has similarities, but I feel like Richard Crafts doesn't quite seem as uh, over the over the over the top over the top. Thank you, as as Capano with all of his with all his craziness. And, yeah. yeah. Oh man, that was nuts. Um, but I mean, like it's just weird because like you know you have the maid, you have the carpet stain, mm-hmm. you have no body. Uh, you have like a freezer, which before it was a cooler. Yeah, I, I did think about that cooler. Um, and also, I believe I said that that one was the first in the state of Delaware to be prosecuted for murder without a body. This was the first in Connecticut. Oh. Hmm. Um, and just so we don't get sued, because that's a thing that happens, um, my sources for this week was the first ever episode of Forensic Files. Uh, Wikipedia for some of it, Murderpedia for some more, um, a website called Vocal, and another one called Morbidology. Morbidology, that's a cool website name. I know, I like that name a lot, and that's why I was like, ooh, I'll click this link. <laughs> well, that was a very interesting story. I, I yeah, that's freaking mind-blowing that like, that little weird tidbit from Fargo is actually based on a well, real crime. Well, because if you look at the, the, the credits in the beginning of the okay. movie, it says based on a true story. I'm mean, very, very loosely based, but... Right. That's most movies usually are yeah but 
because I mean the whole thing at the end with a what's her name Francis McDormand McDormand and she's like with your buddy and the wood chipper there and like all that <laughs> stuff like <laughs> and it's a beautiful uh, day too like you know, like one of her finest roles she was really great in that I love the oh Arby's oh <laughs> <laughs> oh so good yeah all right well I say we take a short take a little break, break. Little pit stop. I don't want any road snacks after that. I kind of do just because I haven't eaten dinner yet. Ugh, gross. <laughs> no, no barbecue. No barbecue. And we're back. And we're back. Slight pause for air conditioning. Or no, not air conditioning. The heat. The heat. The whirling of the heat. It's like we're in a jet plane, y'all. Which means I get to tell my joke again. You have to pretend it's still funny. You told a joke before? I did tell a joke. It was funny. <laughs> you should have listened. It was listened. funny. Sorry, what was your joke? About how you have two stories this week. Yeah, I do. And I said it was double your terror, double your fun. Uh, something, something, doublement ghosts. Doublement ghosts. <laughs> it's still funny. It's still funny. <laughs> <laughs> I just picture like two people on like a double, one of those like double bikes and sheets. Oh, the, just the like, tandem ah, bikes? Yeah. With, like, sheets over their head, trying to pedal. Oh, hilarity. Anyway. Now that I spoiled, go ahead. <laughs> we have two stops today. Um, double story. Double paranormal story for you. Devilment gum. Devilment ghosts. Devilment ghosts. <laughs> I still picture these two ghosts on a tandem bicycle. <laughs> Just leaning out, all happy. Um... So smiling sheet face, smiling sheet face, like the screen, but like friendlier, <laughs> friendlier. Yeah. 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 Oh God. Did you see that thing where like, I can't look at the screen again and not see it Mm-mm. where it was like a picture on Facebook and someone wrote like about seeing a dog instead of seeing a person, like the hands become ears and it's like, it really looks like a freaking dog. Oh, ruined. Yeah. Completely ruined. Awesome. Well, no, it's not ruined. My double story. Your double story. <laughs> so our first stop is going to be in Thomaston, Connecticut. It's a town in Litchfield County, which is in northwestern Connecticut. Uh, Thomaston is a pretty old town. It was founded in 1728, and it's known for its history of clock making. I didn't know that Connecticut was even like a powerhouse in clock the clock industry, but apparently it was like all the rage in the 19th century. So you don't really think of anywhere for clocks specifically? No, I just think of cuckoo clocks. Yeah. Like, that's it. Maybe, Germany, maybe Big Ben. Big you know. Ben, maybe. Oh, well, yeah, that's true, too. But, eh. So, even the name of the town, Thomaston, comes from this man, Seth Thomas, who established the first successful clock manufacturing business in the town in the early 1800s, and the industry just grew from there. But I am not talking about haunted clocks today. Sorry about it. Oh, damn it. No, are you afraid of the dark style stories? Nope, nope. Uh, today is all about theater. Theater. Or at least some theaters in particular. So if I say Macbeth during your story, is it going to be cursed? I hope not. Or do I? Macbeth. <laughs> well. Go ahead. We'll see. Break a leg. Let me let me tell you about the first how, uh, opera house and see if I survive. Okay. Uh, the first one is amply named, because it's in Thomaston, Connecticut, the Thomaston Opera House. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Very straightforward. I like it. Not very creative, but, you know. <laughs> Well, everyone knows where it's at, though. It is very descriptive. I'll give it that. Um, I'm actually doubly excited about my double story since the 
Thomaston Opera House was suggested by a listener in Connecticut, one of our very first listener suggestions, so that's super exciting. Which is awesome. We love when you guys reach out to us. Yeah, very cool. Um, she said that she had done community theater as a kid at the Opera House and had always heard stories about it being haunted, so I'm super grateful for the suggestion because I found some delightful information about this, and it kind of led me down this rabbit hole that I'll, I'll take you down too. As we get further along in our story. Taking us down with you, I see. Mm-hmm. Always. So the Opera House is located in, surprise, downtown Thomaston on the corner of Main and Clay Street. It was built in 1884. It's this large three-story red brick building um, with a large square tower that rises almost five stories and includes this really cool open arched belfry, like a pyramid roof on top with a weather vane, and then, of course, a large clock face facing the town, because... Clocks. It's what they do. Inside, there's floor seating uh, behind the orchestra on the main floor, and then there's an upper mezzanine level in the opera house. Have you ever actually sat in the mezzanine? Yes, I have. It Like, I'm afraid of heights, and I get very dizzy and feel like I'm going to throw myself off the edge. I'm not sure if we talked about this before okay, another I, episode, I think. Oh, maybe. And I, I, I get you. I feel that way, too. But um, I was at a concert in Staten Island, <laughs> um, and we were up in the second mezzanine level, oh. so, like, super high up. And for the beginning of the concert, I just did not feel safe. I was like, I don't like this. I feel like I'm going to fall forward. I don't like this at all. By the time the lights went down and everything was decent, I'd like I just I started dancing, I started doing whatever, you know, mm-hmm. I was completely fine and forgot about it, but it was scary at first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that, like you're like, are we in the nosebleed section? Because I feel like I'm gonna die. Oh yeah, altitude yeah. too high. <laughs> well, the Thomaston Opera House only has the one mezzanine level, so you you'd be fine sitting in there catching Good. a show. Um, the opera house is really used as a hub of theater and also social events in the town. So they would do like town socials there, that sort of thing. Speakers would come to address like local clubs there. Um, that was true up until the 1930s, uh, when they converted the opera house from like a stage theater house to a movie house. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So you can go catch a flick. And then the interesting thing is that the bottom floor was kind of used as just like office space. Mm-hmm. So top floor was like the theater and the mezzanine and the back the backstage portion of the opera house and then the lower levels were office space. Um, during the 1960s, the opera house was closed for safety code violations because it was getting pretty old at that point. Yeah. Um, but this actually presented an opportunity to renovate and restore the opera house. And that's exactly what the town of Thomaston did. It reopened in the early 1970s and the theater continued to operate on the upper floors while the lower floors officially became space that was used by the town so it would have things like town offices you know the mayor's office that sort of thing in the bottom okay also in the early 70s the thomaston opera house was added to the national register of historic places yeah it can't be torn down now Yay! Uh, today the opera house is still in use and they have a resident theater company uh called the landmark community theater they're a local nonprofit, and they run daily operations there and they also stage productions throughout the year we should check that out if we're ever in connecticut yeah they the have some time. good ones they have some good ones I was checking out some of their, their recent productions on their website, and I was like, I would, I would see that. Yeah. So during my research, I did encounter a lot of stories about paranormal activity. Everything from, you know, almost prerequisite cold spots to slamming doors, uh, mysterious footsteps were reported, and the opera house was supposedly built on top of a graveyard. Supposedly. 
I'm not yawning at you. I was just very tired. Mm. I'm sorry. But Given you an opera house built in the graveyard, you're like, oh. <laughs> you're like, oh. Anyway. How pedestrian. Oh. <laughs> no, no, that is like, of course, great idea. Yeah, great idea. Good on you for thinking of that. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't confirm that. And and beating the history and like how the town was bequested, the land the opera house was built on, it was actually bequested by one of um, Seth Thomas the eponymous. Yeah, I think that's right. Eponymous town founder, his name. One of his his descendants actually gave them the land, so I can't see them being like, "Oh, here's some family land." Also, the graveyards there. Have fun moving those bodies. <laughs> um, so I think that's more more urban legend built around this this great old majestic be. theater house. You know how stories like to yep. build and build. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. However, I did come across a couple articles in um, like the local Hartford newspaper. Um, some other uh, Connecticut periodicals that interviewed um, some of the employees who work there. And they have said things like they have heard the large organ that's in the back of the theater kind of go off and start to play itself late at night. The executive director at the opera house has even experienced his office doorknob rattling at night. Not scary at all. Yeah, not scary at all. And like this poor guy, he's like sitting in his office, you know, just running through the books, making sure everything's ship shape at the opera house. And he just hears like a jiggling doorknob. And he gets up to investigate and there's no one there. And he's completely alone by himself. So he's like obligated to check the entire theater and doesn't find anybody. And he's just kind of like, well, that was a thing that happened. That reminds me of what happened before you came over today. What? Yeah. Um, So I was just like getting stuff ready around the house. Um, I went into the kitchen for something and I hear this knock on my door. Mm -hmm. So I like run straight to the door thinking, okay, it's you. I got to let you in. Mm -hmm. No one there. I looked around. There was no one anywhere out in the street no one at all was it a squirrel they don't knock on the door like humans do i don't think i don't know they might have angry nuts but it was like the weirdest thing because i know i heard knocking i know for a fact i heard knocking but there was no one there at all that is kind of spooky i don't like that no it's really weird pass so those are some of the stories i could substantiate right about the opera house okay there were a lot of stories that related to a fire that supposedly happened at the Thomasville Opera House and the subsequent apparitions of a fireman who died in the blaze. There was also stories about how there used to be a firehouse next to it and that a fireman hung himself in the attic of the firehouse and now he haunts the theater. Oh, wow. Okay. I looked at the local records and I didn't see anything about any fire at all. That's what they want you to think. Dun, dun, dun. Don't trust the man. <laughs> So I'm I'm led to believe this is probably just a little bit of local theater gossip, you know, drama. <laughs> However, the best story that I could validate was one about a seat in the second row of the mezzanine on the left side of the theater. Uh, it's a seat that's always reserved, even when the house is packed. And the reason it's reserved is because it's reserved for someone who is not immortal. Interesting. The seat's reserved for a ghost named Butch. 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 All right. There's actually a plaque on the back of the seat that has his name on it. And some of the actors who have been in various stage productions have sworn that they have seen a ghost sitting in that seat during their performances. Creepy. I'm going to sit in Butch's chair because I want to. (laughs) That's, you know, that's your own prerogative, (laughs) man. (laughs) Um, Again, during the course of my research, I was pretty curious to see why Thomaston decided to build, like, an opera house versus, like, a theater. Like, yeah. you you really like Puccini? Is that, like, your jam? <laughs> like, I don't know why that would be, like, what this small little Connecticut town would build. Well, it turns out I fell down quite the rabbit hole. 
Oh. It took me from Puritan England to modern day Connecticut, Hartford news stories. Nice. And basically from what I could tell is that the citizens in this quiet corner of Connecticut weren't alone in their fever for opera houses. Um, following the Civil War, a lot of New England towns built their own opera houses. Okay. You call it opera house fever, you know. <laughs> opera house fever. <laughs> Um, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, like your average American really considered theater kind of a seedy endeavor. Okay. It's like, you know, actors kind of travel from place to place. The people who go to theater are usually lower class. Um, it's used to entertain like the poor classes. Very bad rap. Oh no, nowadays it seems like, oh yes, I'm going to the theater. Right? Talk about a 180 where it's yeah. like, oh, theater. Um, even to the point where like people would like be like, I want to grow up, be an actor, mom and dad. They're like, you're disowned. Yeah, right. That's it's true. like, it's like saying, I want to grow up and be a pimp mom and dad. Like that <laughs> was like the level of how disreputable the theater was in America during, during the 18th and 19th century. Um, this was especially true in the Puritan founded New England area. Um, because like in England before they came over, like the, the Puritans were very active in trying to shut down theaters. They felt it was like vanity and that's something that good, God-fearing people would participate in or enjoy to watch. How puritanical of them. I know. Their names speak for themselves. Yes. Um, I had found some cool examples in history. Like in Massachusetts, theater was actually banned until 1790. And in Connecticut itself, theater was technically illegal. What? From 1800 to 1952, like depending on what city or town you were in. Really? Yep. And the way that some of these cities and towns would get around it is that they would build an opera house. Okay, so then, yeah, it wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really cool. I never yeah. knew that. And I guess, like, after the Civil War and all the economic boom time for the Northeast really drove a lot of these cities to expand to become more cosmopolitan. So as you have larger cities like Hartford opening up opera houses, and usually what would be at the opera would be the classier forms of live entertainment, like opera, ballet versus theater and it's, you know, poor reputation, wealthier towns like Thomaston got on board. According to an article I found on the New England Historical Society's website, an opera house actually provided a sense of urban sophistication, and many small communities used them as enticements for railroad companies to establish a stop in their village to bring in extra commerce. Nice, good thinking. Exactly, I thought it was pretty clever. Um, Some cities ended up combining their opera house with government offices, Again, they did it because it made really good economic sense. The money raised from the theater tickets could be used to pay for city hall things. So that was kind of clever. So it brought in like a good amount of revenue for, yeah. Yeah, city offices. Yeah, Yeah. just to help them run more efficiently. While these venues were all called opera houses in New England, uh, they rarely actually saw any opera performed. It was always plays and vaudeville acts for the most part. When I did a search of the National Register of Historical Places, because I couldn't help myself down this rabbit hole. Oh, of course. I searched for opera houses, and I found a startling 168. Oh, my God. Right? A lot of them. Like, That's I, a lot. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. I thought it'd be a couple. But it did turn out that a majority are, are in New England, and that four are actually in Connecticut alone, which is Connecticut. You're tiny. You got a lot of opera houses. Yes. All the historical register. Places. Most opera houses per capita, I bet. I bet. I need to Google that. We should look it up. I mean, <laughs> what kind of weird statistic is that, though? <laughs> very specific. Yes. So, it was on the National Register of Historic Places, actually, though, that led me to our second stop for today, which is in Derby, Connecticut. Derby, Connecticut is a south-central city town in Connecticut. It's in New Haven County, 
and it's actually pretty old. It was settled back in 1642 as an Indian trading post. Now, during the 19th century, Derby was a hub for manufacturing. There was a large iron foundry there, and the city produced numerous products like corsets and hoop skirts, anything really made out of iron that you would, like, throw into textiles, that sort of thing. Okay. Now, across from the village green on Elizabeth Street sits the Sterling Opera House. The building is a three-story structure with this lovely Italian Victorian style. It also has a square corner tower, top of the belfry. I guess that's like the vogue for opera houses. Always Seems square, to be, yeah. Square towers. Inside the opera house, it's kind of cool because it's arranged in this way that makes it possible for anybody who's going to a theater event there to enjoy an unobscured view of the stage. And they achieve that by elevating different platforms and, and seating within the opera house and arranging it in a semicircular pattern. So... Kind of awesome. Yeah. I was like reading more about that, and I guess it was something that Richard Wagner, the oddly enough opera composer, mm-hmm. had really advocated in theater design so that everyone could enjoy the show no matter what seat they had. Wagner was the ring of the, the Nibelung guy. The, yeah. Yeah. The golden rings, the mm-hmm. Tannhauser, mm-hmm. which is just fun to say. I just enjoy even saying Wagner. I don't know why. Wagner. It's probably because we just read it like Wagner and then it's boring. But when you say Wagner, it's fun. Instantly classy. Exactly. <laughs> just add Vog. Because German is so fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Such sweet, soothing sounds. Sweet, dulcet German. <laughs> Lots of... <laughs> <laughs> so, now that you know how the Sterling Opera House is set up inside, let me tell you a little bit about its history. It was opened to the public on April 2nd, 1889. I love how it's the second and not the first. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're opening an opera house. April Fool's, we're opening it tomorrow. Yeah. And it stayed open as an opera house until 1945. Uh, the city town hall and police station were also, again, located in this opera house on the lower levels from 1889 to 1965. Uh, the opera house was named after Charles Sterling, who was an influential piano manufacturer who founded his business in Derby in 1873. Sterling also provided two large pianos for the opera house when it opened. Uh, unfortunately, he did not live to see the opening of the opera house, so it was almost named for him as like a memorial. Yeah. According to the City of Derby website, the Sterling Opera House's acoustics rivaled the acoustics of the New York's Metropolitan Opera House. Oh, wow. That's high praise. Yeah. Apparently, even a whisper could be heard at the back of the theater from, sta- from a whisper on stage. Now I want to go there and sing. I mean, you can. I will do it. This place is still open? Well, it's not an opera house anymore, but I'll get to that later. Okay. Plus, it was the host to many famous performers and entertainment figures of the day, especially in the early 20th century when the opera house started functioning as a movie theater as well. So everyone from composer John Philip Sousa, dancer Donald O'Connor, master illusionist Harry Houdini, George Burns, Gracie Allen, Milton Berle, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, the Barrymores, except for Drew. Except for Drew. Except for Drew. Drew. So Lionel, John, and Ethel, all of those folks appeared at the Sterling Opera House. Okay. So it was a pretty major hub on the theater circuit. Even Amelia Earhart addressed the local women's club from the Opera House stage in 1936. Maybe that's where she's been all this time. Maybe. Who knows? Amelia, are you out there? Also, I found this piece particularly interesting. Uh, D.W. Griffin, who is the renowned silent filmmaker, he made Birth of a Nation. Okay, that's uh, the racist one. Yes, that's the racist one. <laughs> he, he, he kind of innovated a lot of the early silent films. 
Uh, he chose to premiere a lot of his films actually within the walls of the Sterling Opera House. I didn't know that. That's yeah, pretty cool. Very, very interesting. It would be like where he would do the East Coast premiere. I only recently learned about Birth of a Nation, too, from another podcast. It's interesting. There was also um, Intolerance, I think it's called. And it's like his epic that like for years afterwards, because it's like has all these amazing sets that he built and it kind of bankrupted him, I think is what it, what the story was. But these like cities of Babylon set that he built like in Hollywood, oh, like lingered for years until they eventually just I do decayed. know about that. Yes. Yeah. It's kind of cool because you can see pictures of them like posted on the internet if you search for it and you see the different stages of decay. And it's like, you got to tear that down. So this, well, it's kind of like um, in... Where the hell did they film Lord of the Rings? New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how they still have, like, the sets up there and stuff. And you can go and see everything. And it's been, God, a while since those came out. Because that was, like, early 2000s, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be cool to go into a Hobbit house. It would be really cool. I just love that round door in, like, um, Frodo's house. So it's all abandoned, right? Yeah. That's what the Sterling Opera House. Nice. <laughs> Um, like I mentioned, and like you asked before, yes, you can still go there, but for all intents and purposes, it's no longer an active theater. It was added to the National Register of Historic Places in the late 1960s. Cool, so they can't tear it down. Yeah, they can't tear it down. But the trouble is, is that it needs extensive upgrades. So like, Mm. it doesn't have like a sprinkler system. It needs all the modern safety precautions. Well, if there's a fire and I go there, it'll still be worth it because I just want to see this place now. All right. Yeah, there's really cool pictures online. There's definitely some really cool uh, articles and pictures I, I can link to that I used as reference material because awesome. it's super cool. Um, but it's basically a Benham building. You can go visit it. There are local tours that go through occasionally. Um, even some paranormal investigators who've explored the opera house, like the ghost hunters, um, they've opened it up for them. They'll also open it up at certain times, like Halloween, that sort of thing. Okay. Now, you figure it's an abandoned place. You've had... Tons of famous people in there throughout the years. Lots of years of performances. It's bound to be some kind of hubbub Mm -hmm. in the paranormal variety in that theater. So what people have reported there have been things like shadowy figures, orbs of light, objects moving on their own, or even light switches turning off and on and off and on. Like what little kids do. Yes. And it's interesting because some of the paranormal investigations have actually captured things like children's voices. Okay. Throughout the theater. And that probably is kids with the lights. Yeah, they think there's definitely like some childlike ghosts there. Um, they've captured misty apparitions and orbs. Um, there's purportedly a picture somewhere, I couldn't find it online, that shows a ghostly image of Victorian-era woman and a child. Okay. So that's kind of cool that there's this very, very predictable sort of style of haunting in the Sterling Opera House. That's interesting. I didn't come across any catastrophic or tragic events in the Opera House's history, but there were a few entities that have been reported over and over again throughout the history of okay. the building. Please tell me. Well, first, there's the young spirit of a boy who appears in the opera house. People have reported finding children's toys in random places in the theater. Uh, these toys will move locations in the building by some unknown force. And they've also seen handprints of a child, child size handprints appear in dust in the theater. Creepy. Yeah. Like, I read an article where um, they talk about this specifically, and the witness, and he's also somebody who does tours of the opera house, he refers to the ghost as Andy, and they'll bring in toys for Andy to play with. And they he said he's witnessed him playing with a soccer ball in the balcony area, that uh, he's also seen toys move, as I mentioned before. So they call this little ghost Andy. Little Andy. 
Little Andy. Not at all creepy. Well, and there's that creepy Dolly Parton song. It's like, little Andy. Oh, I don't even know that Dolly Parton oh, song. I mean, I love myself some Dolly. I'm going to Google it after I'm done. Didn't you go to Dollywood? Twice. Twice? I didn't know about twice. I like know you I said, told me about like her wigs and shit. I love myself some Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, as soon as I read the story about the ghost child named Andy, I just had to listen to little Andy because, <laughs> yeah, it felt, it felt right, you know? It felt right. I understand. Kismet. <laughs> So the other ghost that people report seeing is of a man who is dressed in, again, late Victorian clothing. People say that it's Charles Sterling because he died before the Opera House opened, but he did donate a lot of money to its construction. So they think it could be Charles checking out his masterpiece, essentially, of philanthropy. Because I know that I would, if I put my heart and soul into something, Mm -hmm. I would want to see it to fruition. I wouldn't let a little thing like death stop me. And you shouldn't. Exactly. They also say that the images that would be captured of the woman in black or Victorian garb is his widow. Okay. So that's that's who they attribute those apparitions to. So you have these definite like three entities that you'll see at Swirling Opera House. Now I really want to go. Yeah, I mean they will open it up for for investigations and things like that. It's not something that you could just like roll up to on a road trip and be like, I'd like to go inside, please. Yeah. You have to arrange it through through the local uh, city offices and things like that. But that is a Sterling Opera House, and so there you have it. Two haunted opera houses for the price of one. Perfect. I'm glad that I got my money's worth this week. <laughs> Sometimes I feel jipped by us, you know, but not this week. I always buy the good road snacks. <laughs> snacks. Snacks. <laughs> so I guess that kind of wraps it up for this week. That it does. Next week we will still be in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I will have a true crime story for you, and Eden will have a paranormal story. If you guys like what you heard, please feel free to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show. Twitter at Roadside Horror because Twitter's weird. It is weird. It's a weird, weird place. You can visit us on our website at, um, oh my God, RoadsideHorrorShow.Podbean.com. I forgot the name of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And you literally just said it. (laughs) I know. Oh, we have fun here, guys. We do. <laughs> so much fun. Oh, Lord. Okay. Um, if you guys want to share the fun that we have and share in that fun and send us your own stories of paranormal fun, or maybe not so fun, depending. Or just want to say hi, send us pictures of your pets, whatever you want. We do love cute animals after reading all this doom and gloom. Oh, yes. You can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. We would also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro songs. All right, guys. Until next week, keep on... Creep on creeping on. Creep on... I, I, don't even know our, I don't even know our sign-off. You don't know the name of the podcast. I don't know the sign-off. We are a hot mess We are a week. complete mess, people. Thank you for dealing with us. Messes out. <laughs> <laughs>